I'm going to be speaking this morning on a subject pertaining to Mary, the mother of Christ. And I do think we'll have a lot of interesting things to say on that and do hope and pray that many of you can visit with us and come by the Rainbow Drive Church and just see what we have to offer you. And if you don't live anywhere near Rainbow Drive Church of Christ and worship with the nearest congregation of the Church of Christ to you. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, now to the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I want us to read the 39th through the 45th verses together, and that will be our text uh, for this morning. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. He said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Let's see if we can recreate some of the events that took place leading up to the dialogue that we've just read and the situation where Jesus crucified between the two thieves. This took place during the Feast of the Passover, a time of year when literally tens of thousands of Jewish people would meet in Jerusalem in observance of the Passover, first of all to commemorate their being delivered from Egyptian bondage, also to commemorate the passing of the death angel over the home and sparing the firstborn where the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the lintel of the doorpost. And they also, during this time, would commemorate their firstborn to the Lord. While it was a very solemn occasion, the religious aspects of the Passover were extremely solemn. They'd eat their Passover meal in the evening. The next day they would go out and take some of these sheaves from the field and wave these sheaves into the sky or towards the sky as some kind of a peace offering unto God, just a symbolic gesture. Now, though the religious aspect of the Passover was very solid, very serious, there was much that went on separate from the religious aspect and where there was a whole lot of frivolity and gaiety and uh, good times taking place, if you will. I think the closest that we have to the way they observe the Passover, the closest we have to it today is the way many people observe Christmas. Nothing in the Bible about observing Christmas, but the way many people observe it is is They attend the Mass or church in the morning and then uh, in the afternoon or the evening or during that season, they go to parties and consume more alcoholic beverages and they consume any other time of the year and just uh, live uh, sort of a wild life during that particular time. Much frivolity, much gaiety, much partying and what have you. Well, now, the Feast of the Passover may not have been to that point, to the point that some people do it. Christmas today, but it was a time not only of a religious observance, but of getting together and renewing acquaintances, and there was just much that took place separate and apart from the religion. When on this particular day, there was tremendous amount of anticipation and excitement in the air because some crucifixions were about to take place. Some people were about to be executed, and that always excites mankind. You know, we're not too far removed from the gladiator days. Back in the gladiator days, they used to Gladiators used to fight to the death just for the uh, entertainment of the people, especially the uh, aristocrats of that particular time. And you all know that Christians were fed to wild animals. We've 
beheaded people, decapitated them on the guillotine publicly. We've executed people publicly. In fact, in China, they still execute them publicly. These young boys that resisted the government over there, they were executed publicly before all of the people. Anybody who chose to attend the execution was welcome to attend it. Well, back in Jesus' day, crucifixions were common, and they were common as far as uh, being done publicly. The public was welcome to watch these crucifixions. Well, on this day, with these crucifixions about to take place, there was tremendous excitement and tremendous anticipation in the air. Well, at the appointed time, the Roman centurion goes to the prison and he asks for those about to be executed to be released unto him. And the first one that comes from the prison is Jesus wearing a seamless rope, followed by two thieves. Now, in those days when people were about to be executed, they would walk through the crowd and there would be a man in front of the condemned persons who would be carrying a placard. A placard is simply, you know, like you'll see a sign at a football game or baseball game. Somebody waves a sign and trying to convey a message. Well, that's a placard. Well, now this man would walk before the condemned carrying this placard, and on the placard would be the crimes that they were accused of, the reason for them being condemned. Well, with the two thieves, the placards read robbers and murderers. The placard pertaining to Jesus read Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You see, there wasn't a crime that they could accuse Jesus of. There wasn't a crime that he had committed. He hadn't broken any laws, so there was nothing they could put on that placard except Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, in derision. They put those words up there in derision, making fun of Jesus, mocking him, belittling him. They said, you're the King of the Jews? Well, you deserve a crown, and they embedded a crown of thorns at his head. You're the king of the Jews? You deserve the homage. We should pay homage to you. And they spat in his face. You're the king of the Jews? You deserve a throne. And they nailed him to the cross. So they ridiculed and mocked and belittled the Son of God. And the words, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, were put on the placard in derision of, of Jesus, mocking him, ridiculing him, belittling him, undermining him. While the procession towards uh, Calvary's cross, when it begins, they go by, evidently, uh, Pilate's Hall. And I kind of assume that Pilate probably was observing all of the events and observing the crucifixion. And I think he may have been saying to himself when they passed in front of his hall and Jesus being condemned and carrying Calvary's cross, he may have said, you know, this man could have saved himself. All he had to do was tell me that he was not the Son of God. The only accusation they were bringing against him was that he claimed to be the Son of God. He had broken no laws. He hadn't violated any uh, legislation. He hadn't done anything that was worthy of uh, imprisonment, much less, much less execution. But by insisting that he was the son of God, he was opposing, in a sense, Caesar, because Caesar had commanded us that no one should claim to be God or God's son or make themselves equal to Caesar. Well, by claiming to be the son of God, he was putting himself far above Caesar. And this is one thing that Caesar wouldn't tolerate. So by him claiming to be the son of God, the Jewish people were within their rights to demand that he be executed. If he simply would have said, I am not the Son of God, I would have been able to exonerate him. I would have been able to vindicate him. I would have been able to free him. But he would not say that he wasn't the Son of God. In fact, kept insisting that he was God's Son. I imagine Pilate's wife may have said to him, Pilate, we're condemning an innocent man. We're crucifying an innocent man. You remember Matthew 27 and 19? Pilate's wife had sent word to Pilate, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. 
Pilate's wife knew that Jesus was innocent. And here were all of these Jewish people, the religious people now you understand, of that day. Understand that. The people who cried out, crucify him, and let his blood be on us and our children, were the religious people of that time. They were God's chosen people of that time. The Jewish people, God's chosen race at that particular time. And here at the Feast of the Passover, they were eating their Passover meal in the evening, uh, celebrating the Passover in the morning, and involved in an execution or a crucifixion in the afternoon. Now, you talk about religious hypocrisy. Always been prevalent, friends and brethren. I never have been able to understand why people who claim now to be Christians and some people who are truly Christians, as far as uh, their obedience on the Lord and everything is concerned, but have never, never began to grasp what the Bible teaches on loving your enemy and doing good to those that persecute you, praying for those who despitefully use you. Paul says in Romans, the 12th chapter, the 19th verse, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him to drink. By so doing, thou shalt heat coals of fire on his head. Well, now, the Bible teaches us plainly that people who believe in God, people who believe in Jesus Christ, people who follow after Jesus Christ are not supposed to be a vengeful type people. We're not supposed to retaliate. The Bible says if they smite thee on one cheek, Jesus said, you turn to them the other also. Any man would sue thee a law for thy cloak, you give unto him thy coat. Any man that would compel to go with thee a mile, you go with him twain. Jesus says, we're never to retaliate. We're to be a peaceful people. Yet, some of the most atrocious crimes committed in history have been committed by people who claim to be religious, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Adolf Hitler claimed to be a religious man. He claimed to be doing the will of Jesus by trying to practice genocide on the Jewish people. This inquisition of the Middle Ages the Spanish Inquisition, those were men who claimed to be doing the will of God, claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ that were putting people to death, executing people for the crime of disagreeing with the hierarchy of that particular time. You could go on and on and point out how history proves the religious wars, the killings, the murders that have been perpetrated in the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one person who taught against that as vehemently as he taught against anything in this world. Why is it that people who claim to be followers of Christ, why is it that people who claim to be religious have never learned, never began to grasp what the Bible teaches on loving your enemy and doing good to those who hurt you and blessing those who persecute you? What the Bible teaches on the equality of all men? Peter saying in Acts 10 and 34 that God is respecter of no person, but all who feareth him worketh righteousness, and every nation are acceptable unto him. Some of the worst bigotry, some of the worst prejudice, if you ever, in all of this world is among people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Well, now here, friends and brethren, were these Jewish people, the religious people of their day, people of God of that particular time, and they were crucifying the Son of God. At least, uh, imploring the Romans to do the crucifying. The Jewish people back then didn't have the authority to do the crucifying. But it was the Jewish people who implored Pilate to have Jesus executed and who cried out, crucify him and let his blood be on us and our children. While the crucifixion is completed as far as Jesus and the thieves being nailed to the cross, Jesus being nailed to the cross and how they did it with the thieves, whether they tied him to the cross or not, I don't know, but Jesus being nailed to the cross and here was Jesus hanging on the cross in the midst of these two thieves. And this thief looks over at Jesus, and he says, Remember me this day 
in thy kingdom. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus says, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. What an absolutely tremendous exchange of words. What tremendous dialogue, as short as it was. But what overwhelming lessons are taught in this short dialogue. First and foremost, the thief makes no excuses. Doesn't blame anybody else for his predicament. Doesn't say, well, Lord, uh, you know, I just never had a break in life. I grew up in a poor environment and I got associated with the wrong people and I'm not really responsible for what I've done here or the crimes that I've committed against society and I hope that you'll take that under consideration. He didn't do that. He simply said, remember me. By saying, remember me, what he was saying to Jesus was, I'm a sinner, Lord, and I need you to save me. I need your saving grace. I need you to deliver me from my sins. Friends and brethren, until every human being on the face of this earth can say with the thief on the cross, remember me. That that will be that long before these people can be saved. No man or no woman will ever go to heaven asking Jesus to remember other people or pointing out the weaknesses of other people. Until we can all admit with the Apostle Paul, there's not one that's righteous, no, not one. Until we can all admit that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Until we can... Believe what John says in 1 John 1, that any man that saith he hath no sin deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. Until we believe Jesus' words, unless you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Until we believe Paul's words in Ephesians 2 and 12, that though that we are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise, without God and without hope in this world, until every man and every woman on the face of this earth can see the need for them to repent, until they can say, Lord, remember me. It'll be that long before they can be in a right relationship with the Lord. The thief, friends and brethren, did not compare himself to anyone else. Did you ever think of that? He could have compared himself to other people very favorably under these conditions. Could he not have said to the Lord, Hey, Lord, am I any worse than these religious hypocrites out here? I mean, am I any worse than these people who ate the Passover meal, who waved the sheaves to God in heaven as a peace offering, who are praying and now they're out here crucifying us? Am I any worse than them? Are they not hypocrites? Well, it seems to me that everybody involved in that crucifixion certainly practiced some form of hypocrisy. Could the thief have not have said, you know, I'm no worse off than these religious people. Why should I have to obey you? Why should I have to turn to you? He could have said that, but he didn't. He recognized his need for Jesus. He could have compared himself with the other thief. He could have said, hey, Lord, look at how much better I am than this other thief. He keeps talking to you about cutting him down from the cross, getting him down from the cross. He's not interested in spiritual things. He's not interested in being with you in a better world than this one, a better place than this. All he's concerned about is this life. And look at how he's mocking you and ridiculing you and belittling you. Aren't I much better than he? Than he? he undoubtedly was much better than the other thief, but that wouldn't get him to heaven. It wouldn't get him to heaven because there were hypocrites who claimed to be religious or hypocrites who were among the people of God. That wouldn't get him to heaven. Nothing would get him to heaven except him being willing to say, remember me. And when he compared himself with Jesus, it was easy for him to say, remember me. Luke in 5 and 8, where Peter bows before Jesus and he says, depart from me, O Lord, for I am, for I am a sinful man. You know why he said that? compared himself with the Son of God, and he recognized how sinful he was. You remember Isaiah, in the long ago in Isaiah 6 and 5, I believe it is, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But I have seen 
the King, the Lord of hosts. He said, I know when I compare myself with God how weak I am. I know how sinful I am. I know that I'm a man of unclean lips. I know that I dwell among the people of unclean lips. But when I see God, I know my need for God. I have seen the King, the Lord of the hosts. When he compared himself with God, he saw his need for God. When we compare ourselves with Jesus, we'll see our need for Jesus as long as we compare ourselves with the hypocrites in the church. As long as we compare ourselves with the Adolf Hitlers and all of the wicked people of this world. As long as we compare ourselves with anybody else in this world, we might come out looking pretty good. We might be able to make a pretty favorable comparison. We compare ourselves with Jesus, the lamb without blemish and the lamb without spot. He of whom there was found no guile in his mouth. He who never committed a sin, then we see our need for Jesus. The thief recognized, friends and brethren, that he was sinking in, if you will, the quagmire of sin. You know, a man dying in quicksand or sinking in quicksand, the more that this man attempts to extricate himself, the more he attempts to free himself, the faster and the deeper he sinks. The only hope a man who's in quicksand has is that a savior would come by and extend to him a branch or a rope or his hand or something and pull this man who's in the quicksand to safety. He cannot save himself. The harder he tries to save himself, the more he tries to save himself, the faster he sinks. Friends and brethren, that is the only way we can be saved from the quicksand or quagmire of sin is through a savior. The more we attempt to extricate ourselves from sin, the more we attempt to save ourselves from sin, the deeper and the faster we sink in the quagmire of sin. We must reach out our hands to Jesus. We must allow Jesus to pull us from the quagmire of sin. No man can do it on his own. And the harder we try, the faster we sink, and the deeper into sin we go. Well, the thief on the cross recognized at that point of his life that he needed Jesus Christ to redeem him of his sins. So he said, remember me in thy kingdom. Jesus says, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Was the, pre was the thief saved? Well, there's no question on the face of this earth he was saved. Jesus said, remember me. And Jesus said, this day shalt thou be with me in, in paradise. He said, remember me. Jesus said, this day you're going to be with me. Somebody says, well, he wasn't baptized. That's true. He wasn't baptized. And I've heard on occasions uh, Christians... Uh, attempt to argue that the thief might have been baptized or he was baptized into John's baptism and he's coming back to the Lord on this occasion and that he had already been baptized so that, you know, to add impetus to the idea, to the fact that one must be baptized in order to get to heaven. Well, now, friends and brethren, I honestly believe that that argument only weakens the truth because if you're going to argue that the thief was baptized without any biblical uh, support whatsoever, there's not the slightest indication in the Bible that the thief was baptized. Not the slightest indication, not even alluded to. The idea is not alluded to that he was baptized under John's baptism and now coming back to the Lord. As far as this story is concerned, it seems that this is the first time that the thief had a confrontation with Jesus. The first time in his life that he recognized Jesus was the Son of God. Well, now, if one is going to try to uh, conjecture or dream up some kind of a hypothetical argument that the thief had been baptized, well, you'd have to do that for everyone else that was saved in Jesus, in the, in, when Jesus was on earth and in the Mosaic dispensation without baptism. The eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, when Jesus saved that adulterous woman, he simply said, go and sin no more. Thy sins are forgiven. He didn't say anything to her about baptism. 
Well, if you're going to argue that the thief on the cross was baptized, you're going to have to argue that the woman in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John was baptized. No, not the slightest indication of that. The sinful woman in Luke, the 7th chapter, who uh, in the home of Simon the Pharisee, Jesus simply said, Thy faith is saved. He didn't say anything to her about being baptized. Well, if you're going to argue the thief on the cross baptized, you're going to have to argue that she had been baptized somewhere along the way with now coming back to the Lord. When Jesus came to the home of Zacchaeus, he said, Salvation has come to thy house this day. Luke, the 19th chapter, he didn't say anything about baptism. He didn't tell Zacchaeus to be baptized. There's no indication that any of these people people had to be baptized in order to get to heaven. You see, friends and brethren, when Jesus was on earth, he could save people the way he wanted to save people. He had the power to save people. You remember in Mark, the second chapter, when Jesus healed the man who was sick of the palsy, and they were denying that Jesus had the power to forgive sins, and Jesus said, now, which is easier to say? Take up thy bed and walk, or thy sins be forgiven thee. But in order to show you that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I'm going to heal the man who's sick of the palsy. To prove to you that I can also forgive sins. That I not only can heal a man physically, I can heal a man spiritually. Jesus had the power to forgive sins when he was on earth. And his will, his last testament, had not yet gone into effect. Hebrews, the ninth chapter of the 16th verse. The writer says, where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is no force while the testator liveth, but is an effector of force only after the death of the testator. My wife and I, along with Elmas Honeycutt and Helen from, uh, Helen Pollard, I believe her last name is, from uh, Central, are going to be going to Russia for some 17 days. We're leaving July the 31st. It's coming up very quickly. We're going to be gone for 17, 18 days, and I'll be missing three programs on this television program won't be with you for some three weeks and because we're going to be in Russia. Well, now, we're looking forward with much anticipation to that trip, but we are making out a will before we go. Just in case anything should happen, I want our assets, my wife and I want whatever assets we have to be divided up among our three children and their families and equal shares. Well, now, when we go to Russia, if something should happen to us, that will will go into effect, will it not? I hope I'm sane and rational, and when I make out this will, I want, if something should happen to my wife and me, for people to abide by that will and to divide our assets up into three equal shares because that's what I've asked them to do in the will. That's why I'm making out the will. Now, if nothing happens to us, and certainly we don't perceive of anything happening, we come back, the will will not be in effect. Is that not right? When we come back from Russia, I'll have the privilege of changing that will if I choose, won't I? The will doesn't go into effect until I die, and we can all understand that. There's no one who can misunderstand that. Well, how come we can't understand it when it comes to Jesus? When Jesus was on earth, he saved people the way he chose to save them. You know why so many people refer to the thief on the cross when they want to reject what the Bible teaches on the truths of baptism? Because that's the way most people want to be saved. They want to go through their life living any way they want to live, and then just before they die, they want to say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and be saved. Well, now, if you're using the thief on the cross to try to be saved that way, that's about as naive as anything on the face of this earth. As I've already pointed out, there's not the slightest indication, friends and brethren, that the thief planned this. At the point of his life when he had this confrontation with Jesus, he believed Jesus was the Son of God, he was willing to do anything that Jesus told him to do. If the thief would be living today, he would obey the gospel today, and he'd be a great Christian. And had he survived that crucifixion, he would have gone on to be one of the great followers of Jesus Christ. People seem to think today that they can mock God, that they can just reject the gospel. The thief didn't reject the gospel throughout his life. When he heard the truth, he was willing to obey the truth, do whatever the Lord told him to do. And so many people today seem to think we can go through life doing anything we want, and then we'll be saved like the thief. How tragic that is, friends and brethren. 
How utterly tragic. Now remember this. It was after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After he had been on this earth in his resurrected form for some 40 days and 40 nights. Just before he ascended back into heaven, that he uttered the words, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. From that day forward, there is not an example in all of the Bible of anyone eating a bite, drinking a sip, or sleeping a week when they wanted to be saved until they obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not an example. Read the story of the conversions on the day of Pentecost, the 3,000. They obeyed the gospel there and then, immediately repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the mission of your sins. Read about the Samaritans on, in Acts 8 chapter with the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, the Samaritans in Acts 8 chapter, the 12th verse, when they believed the things that Philip was preaching concerning the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 13th verse, when Simon believed also, he was baptized. When Philip preached on the Ethiopian unit, they came to a certain water, the unit said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? When Peter preached to Cornelius, he commanded Cornelius and his household in Acts 10 and 48, order them to be baptized. Philippian jailer, Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. The 32nd verse, that was the 31st verse, 32nd verse, he, Paul and Silas, taught the Philippian jailer the word of the Lord. 33rd verse, he and his household straightway were baptized. That hour of the night, every single example of conversion after the death of Jesus Christ, after his will went into effect. It was believe, repent, confess, and be baptized right there and then. And contact the blood of Jesus Christ and be added to his kingdom. Now, if you want to go into the life of Christ and prior to Christ, you can find all kinds of people who were saved and weren't baptized. Moses, prior to John the Baptist, nobody was baptized. Moses wasn't baptized. Abraham wasn't baptized. David wasn't baptized. Joshua wasn't baptized. Jeremiah wasn't baptized. And the thief didn't have to be baptized because he was on earth with Jesus Christ in the Mosaic dispensation and Jesus saved him in that dispensation the way Jesus chose to save him. But if the thief were on earth today and he were hearing the gospel today, he would be required to do what you're required and what I'm required to do because we're living on this side of the cross and living in the Christian dispensation. He'd be required to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, to repent of his sins, to confess Jesus before men, and to be baptized into Christ for the remission of his sins. Friends and brethren, all of you people out there who are not members of the church, if you're banking on the thief on the cross, if you're banking on that story to be saved at the last moment by making this confession of faith or telling Jesus you're sorry just before you die. Oh, you're fooling yourself. You are fooling yourself. Be ye not deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that's what he shall reap. Galatians, the sixth chapter, the seventh verse. You must hear the gospel of Christ as you're doing now, and you must be obedient to the gospel of Christ at the very point that you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You can't manipulate God. You can't fool God. The thief on the cross did not manipulate or attempt to fool God. When he learned that Jesus was the Son of God, he did what he was told to do at that particular time. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God this morning, then you must do as Jesus told you to do at this particular time. Don't think that you can wait till just before you die and then be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Thank you so much for watching.